Welcome back to Voices from Healthcare. Every other week, I seek to paint healthcare in vivid color as I learn more about the human side of medicine. In this episode of Voices from Healthcare. I feel so strongly about other people of color joining the medical field because it's important to see people that look like you in those environments. It's not often that I hear like people, the patients specifically, like tell me that they feel comfortable, but I know that if I have a black patient and they see me in the room, it, it eases some of that anxiety. Um, it, it, sometimes you're in scenarios where like as a black person, your, your pain is downplayed or what you're trying to explain is, is undermined or not taken for truth. And so even though I'm not a doctor, I'm still there to make you feel heard regardless of what your race is. So I just find it important for people of color to join the medical field, to be present in the medical field because we've been through some of those adversities. We understand what it's like to not be taken seriously and to not be seen as, as someone coming in for help. That's why people come to us to be healed, to, to receive help and being there for everyone it's important because a lot of people before me didn't have that opportunity most of the doctors are white so when I do see doctors that aren't white I'm happy I'm thrilled that those people are changing those types of statistics it's important um, especially like living in Massachusetts and in Boston to acknowledge that there is a heavy set of like diverse characters that there's a lot of diversity within the city um, there's a there's a lot of different types of people age-wise culture-wise and it's it's inviting to be a part of a newer generation that's interested in those stories that are not just from Massachusetts or not just from the U.S. They're also from different places and different continents. Welcome back to another episode. Today I'm connecting with a surgical technician who specializes in pediatrics at a hospital within the Boston area. I will gain a first-hand perspective to the world of surgical technology. I'll learn of her unique role in surgery and how she works hand-in-hand with the surgeons in the OR. We'll touch on the types of surgery she is involved in, the education needed in order to be a surgical technician, and the powerful perspective she brings as a young black woman to the world of medicine. Angela pursued a biology degree in her undergraduate years and was later encouraged to enter into a 10-month surgical tech program where she learned about the sequence of surgery, as well as the anatomical and physiological aspects of surgery. She is a strong advocate of the importance of wellness within healthcare and stimulating a healthy relationship between the old and young within the medical field. 
Angela is an incredibly joyful human being who is so filled with life. Her story is powerful and it's a pleasure to highlight it today. It's such a pleasure to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jonathan. I'm really so happy to be here and finally able to talk to you in person. Of course. I want to start off with looking at the beginnings and the early stages. So as we've talked before, part of the mission and vision of this podcast is to educate aspiring healthcare professionals on the rich diversity within the medical field. There's so much diversity between nursing, anesthesia, or the various surgical departments within a hospital yet few are aware of the collaboration within a surgical team. So as a surgical technician, you have to constantly be up to date on sequence of surgeries, you have to be familiar with medical jargon, and you have to anticipate the needs of the surgeon. Could you just describe your unique role within the world of that surge tech life? (laughs) Yeah, so I tell people that my job is literally to read the room. So that means I'm looking at what the, the operating, what's happening on the operating table, if a patient's on the bed or not, if the table in the background, if it's set up, like they haven't touched it yet, it's still sterile, or if there's sponges everywhere and there's instruments spread about, I can tell that they've already either underwent the surgery or it's completed. Um, I'm looking at Uh, anesthesia I'm watching what they're doing because if they're getting ready to intubate then I'm making sure I have everything I need and getting ready to scrub soon and so I feel like where I come in is almost like someone who's able to help everybody in a certain way so in the morning when I come in if the anesthesiology um, resident is looking for something, I'm able to tell them, oh, okay, I can help you call somebody or I know where it is, I can help you. If the nurse is too busy to get the blanket for the patient, I'm the one running out of the room to get the blanket for the patient. Or if the doctor needs a certain Band-Aid, if he needs a Band-Aid with Baby Shark on it, I'm going to help him find the baby baby shark band-aid. So I'm able to just kind of fill in the gaps throughout the day. I like to help my team and make sure that we're all on the same communication page and really make sure everything's safe. I feel like sometimes things are rushed, but when everyone is at the same speed of understand, of understanding what's happening in front of us, we're able to slow down and catch mistakes or prevent really big errors. So it's important to just read the room when you walk in and know what's going on based off looking at at what's happening. That's so important. Um, I want to look at your educational journey a little bit. Could you just explain for us your journey to medicine and healthcare and how you arrived at your current profession? I'd love to. So I didn't ever see myself in an operating room, like at all. Um, But I also knew I wasn't going to want to do research at the end of my um, undergrad degree. Mm -hmm. So I was encouraged to do a surgical tech program because it would give me a new set of experience points, like XP points Mm -hmm. in a video game. (laughs) How the more you play the game, the more your XP points go up. And so having like, the hands-on experience in an OR, even if it's helping move over the patients physically 
or like helping open instruments, open um, peel packs onto the OR um, back table, you get better at it as you do it. So for me, I started out applying into the program, not really knowing what it was. I did all the um, prereqs. I did medical terminology and anatomy and the anatomy lab, and I got in. And once I got in, that's when I Googled, what's, what's a surgical technologist? What do they do? And that's how I figured out you're scrubbed in with the doctor. I was in complete shock. I tell everyone this story because it just it speaks to not not calculating it based off what you think you can do. Because I, if I had known that's what it was, I wouldn't have been able, I didn't think I would even apply into it, let alone get into it and physically do it. So I picked behind door number two and it was surgery. And so once you get into the program, it's where I did it. It was a 10 month program where you learn clinical skills, you learn how to um, do the hands-on skills of opening a sterile field, gowning and gloving, um, scrubbing your hands over the scrub sink and not getting it everywhere, <laughs> or doing it quick enough to, to do it in under three minutes, which sounds easy, but it's not. And right. you have to do it in a certain position that you're not dripping everywhere. So you have to like do it at a bend. And there's so many little steps to all the things that we do, but to get good at them, you have to keep doing them over and over again. So you learn a set of skills and then you also learn almost like a crash course on medicine, it felt like, where you're learning about all the body systems and a lot of the common surgeries that will happen on those body systems. Um, you also learn about sterile technique, so how to determine if something's clean, dirty, um, clean contaminated, things like that, so which cases you need to keep which instruments separate to maintain on not infecting a patient. Or uh, another thing that we learned a lot about was uh, like just the sequence of surgery. And for a long time that took me a while to grasp <laughs> because it's unspoken. There's not someone that's like, okay, guys, we're gonna drape out the patient right now. They just go in and scrub and come in. So <laughs> if you're right. not in the right spot, you're gonna miss it. You're gonna like it's it's silent cues. It's a lot of silent cues. So when you learn them in a school setting, like in a in a lab or in a classroom, it's not the same as when you learn it in the actual clinical setting, because now it's go time. Your instructor's not there. Like this is what they're asking you for. You have to think on your feet and use your your like skills to just infer what they're asking you for. Infer what's about to happen next. So it's, it's one big bunch of skills that's morphed into one skill called scrubbing. Mm. Yes. And like you're saying, how you were talking about before of reading the room and how that really plays into your job and your role a lot because of all of those silent cues. And yes. then there's that process of learning the sequence of surgery or scrubbing techniques, all of those things in a classroom setting and in an academic setting. And then you apply that to the operating room. Was there a, a switch when you first came into the operating room, your professional career, you're entering into that space, and then you have to translate what you know, but you have to do it kind of in a different way? Oh, of course. Uh, so I'm left-handed, and one thing for me was passing instruments, left-handed and right-handed. And 
I didn't realize how I pass things to people just on a day-to-day basis until you start to do this job. And so the idea when you're scrubbing is that you want to pass the instrument in the way that the surgeon is going to use the instrument. So you want the instrument to be ready to use to be used as soon as it touches their palm. So that also meant you have to also understand if the surgeon's left-handed or right-handed, so that determines which way the needle as you load it will go. So many things. Wow. <laughs> Don't yeah. lose me here. Don't lose <laughs> me. So the reason why I bring it up is because this past week, I taught another person who's learning to scrub. She's a nurse who's also a lefty who is struggling with the same thing, like passing left-handed and right-handed. And so I'm just like, it's nice now that I was able to um, figure it out and I'm able to share it. But like things like that, you have to learn on the spot because when you try to keep doing it the same way, if you're not doing it right, they'll tell you like, hey, can you do this this way? And you have to take that criticism in the moment. Um, Another thing that happened, the very first case that I scrubbed, like, as a baby scrub, like, just brand new, was, it was a plastic surgery case, and the doctor had asked me for a pair of pickups. So if you work in the OR, you know pickups are forceps. But if you're a fresh baby scrub from from class, (laughs) you, you don't even know what a pickups is. Yeah. And so I was freaking out. I'm like... Do I have that on my kid? Where do I get it from? And I'm like, what do you need? And he's like, pickups. And I go, what What are those? And in that moment, I'd broken out of like, like being professional and just being like, what are you talking about? And he was like, Adson forceps? I go, oh, Adson's pickups. Oh, okay, this makes sense. And I was, I was like, okay, I, I know what it is, but everyone has a different name for it. So that's one of the things you have to revert in and out of by service or by hospital. And so it's, it's another reading in the room. You have to listen to the jargon and know what's going on. But I was freaking out because I didn't think I had the forceps, which I had a bunch of. But I just didn't know what he was calling them. There is that stage of terms and terminology that doctors are using and you might not be familiar with it because you've learned it in its full name or in a textbook and then there's that transition period exactly it's like a light bulb it's the best moment that will happen to you as a student when you finally grasp what's happening it's a nice feeling and the two worlds actually connect exactly (laughs) um so you went through your your 10-month program for the surge tech um, and you're talking about you were doing mock surgeries you were practicing sterile techniques uh, you were getting, as you were saying, a crash course in medicine, right. really a, a growing period. You know, you're learning so much during that time. Right, exactly. Were there any formative experiences or mentors that you had during that time um, that kind of kept confirming your path? Like, I know you were saying at the end of that time, you felt like, yes, like, I know, like, now that I've graduated from this program, I'm glad that I'm a surge tech. But were there any people within the program kind of that helped gain your confidence a little bit yes so I will say my friends were great like supporters because I would tell them modestly like what what my day was like and they'd be like wow like that sounds insane I don't know how you're even like still standing here telling me the story and I appreciate the friends of people who are in the medical field because they don't see what's happening when they're at work but there's 
hopefully able to like embrace you and motivate you because it, it's it's not easy some days like you're you come home really defeated or like someone yelled at you or someone corrected you or you know and it's it's important to have people on the outside that also support you so I'm I, I would love to shout out those people your family mm-hmm. and your friends that you can talk to within the program and within like the field I would say that while I was in school my instructor was really good he was um he always would he always would make sure we were prepared enough to go to clinical we would do back table setups really early on like in our training that was our second clinical I would say or no that was our first clinical to set up or our first, excuse me, that was our first um, mock exam to set up a back table. And that gave us an advantage when we went to clinical and we talked to the other students who never knew how to set up a back table. And I was so glad to have that skill because I still use that skill to this day the same way I learned it four years ago. So he was he was really great. And he was also a lefty. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that shows you lefties can do it too. And uh, I think also just the doctors that I would scrub with, for the most part, were really like understanding, and they wouldn't make me feel like I was going too slow. They could see me putting in effort. So mm-hmm. I think they understood that I was trying my best. And so I'm glad that I was able to have an experience where I felt supported from multiple areas. That's so important to feel supported from your friends and people outside of the program and then people within the program and then your professors and the doctors and everyone has their unique piece of input and advice and it all it all adds up and it really does affect you. Even the people in your class too, like having that oh I, I have to shout them out too. Yeah. Um the group that like we I'd study with, we'd text, we'd make jokes, we'd make um acronyms and stuff to remember things and it those things truly made it feel like I was part of something bigger mm-hmm. and that we were all going through something together. I'm actually still friends with some of those people and it's it's nice to see where it takes people whether they stay like within the city or they they move or they they go to school to become something else it's nice to see the people that you you were struggling with in in lab do great things it's 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 refreshing your your battle brothers yeah literally (laughs) are there are there any practical ways that you can think of for a prospective student someone who's an undergrad or someone who is even in high school at this point who's interested in surge tech, um, is there anything that they could do kind of in their younger years, just like observing or is there anything you can think of? Right. I think that definitely um, paying attention in, in, uh, I think that taking anatomy and uh, physiology really serious in high school, really taking the time to like learn, learn the systems and understand how they work together, that would be what could give you that advantage. When I was in high school in Kenya, when I went to school, 
over there, I was part of an ambulance club, and so I feel like that's a big part of what made me find an interest in medicine. It wasn't, like, we'd learn how to, like, bandage wounds and things like that, but just having that exposure was enough to make me feel like I was capable of helping in medicine more. So finding a relation to what you might want to do in the future early on, whether it's something you want to research or something that you don't understand well. That's another thing too, just like finding a curiosity in something really niche that you just don't understand and trying to learn more about it and taking time, uh, taking your downtime to to be on YouTube and to listen to people's stories. Like that's what will set you apart when you're down the line and in in the real the real game those connections that you make mentally like those ideas that you start to form will help you answer questions it's a great response a lot of good things to take away from there of forming connections and starting to build that and connections with people but then also connections with what you find brings you joy and and you have a kind of passion for that area and to go in that direction keep pursuing that um I want to look a little bit into the, your entrance into medicine. Was your entry into the professional workplace a steep learning curve, or was it more of a gradual progression? I feel like, so I'm, I'm pretty young, um, not to flex. I'm, I'm <laughs> not very old. I'm, I'm in my early 20s. When I started, I was 21. And so that was honestly my first real big job where I had to punch in and punch out and be early, not just be on time, be early, and take call and uh, work really long hours and be on my feet a lot. So it wasn't something that I expected. Also, for anyone who wants to be in medicine, you have to wake up really early a lot of the time. It's not where you can mosey in at 11 and have your Starbucks in hand. It's it's okay you you might not feel like you look your best you try to be prepared but you have to come ready to to do what you're there to do and that means you're waking up at 4 4 35 sometimes so I feel that if I had known that I don't think it would have deterred me away from it but I would have at least been more aware I would have tried to build an early routine earlier on um, it's nice that like during clinical you get that full experience like you're actually working the job when you're not so clinical was super helpful for feeling like this was what I was really doing every day um, it's important to like build habits and to like build a routine and to enjoy the routine because if you don't like the routine you might not do it that often <laughs> um, I think that finding like balance though and making it fun for yourself whether it's headphones and you have a podcast you listen to in the morning you have a coffee that you make that has like a certain type of creamer in it whatever it is just have things that you like for yourself while you're like trying to adapt because if if it just feels like constant battle trying to get out of bed or trying to get there on time or trying to 
to to find a system that works, then I don't. It, it's harder to thrive. Mm. Yeah, finding a a rhythm of work, but that is sustainable and that is enjoyable as much as it can be. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I had never been like handed so much responsibility at that age. I was for sure just in my twenties and like me and my friends joke like that's that was my first real big girl job where you you really have to show up and you have to put aside what's happening outside of work and be there for your for your coworkers and for your patients everybody has a first day in the hospital when you've you finish your training and you have come into the hospital mm-hmm. and you're ready to start your professional um, workplace life mm-hmm. and kind of that professional setting could you give us a glimpse into your first day as a surge tech? A window into your first day. My first day. If you remember it. Okay. From what I remember, okay. So I had trained at MGH, and then I ended up going to a different hospital once I finished my clinicals and passed the exam. So the system, like, that they get their scrubs out of at MGH is different. It's not like that for everywhere else. Like they had like a Scrubex machine, which like you put in your numbers. It's really techy. <laughs> you put in your numbers and it knows what size you are or whatever. You put in your size and it like deliver. It's like a vending machine for scrubs. I always thought that was the weirdest <laughs> thing. Anyways, where I ended up going didn't have that. So I remember just like looking at the selection. I'm like happens if we run out of scrubs one day but you see anyways not related so I remember I remember walking in just seeing a lot of eyes on me and just seeing a lot of people with a bunch of different scrub caps I didn't have any scrub caps at that point um so everyone was actually really friendly um and I remember I scrubbed a plastic surgery case with a now retired doctor who was not very nice and it was I think because I was brand new I didn't realize he wasn't nice I was so focused on just making sure that he had what he needed that I didn't realize how he was talking to anybody else this was Angela who didn't know how to read the room back then was still learning to read the room but I was really focused on him and I'm glad I was because he was he was very not nice to everyone if, if you understand what I mean. Mm-hmm. So looking back on that day, I talked to people about that day, and they're like, oh, yeah, we remember you were really ambitious and, and tried to do everything yourself and, and asked a bunch of questions, so you were great. But I was very nervous, and I was semi-shy, but I remember still trying to put myself out there as much as I could. And... Um, being like happy to introduce myself or being happy to help or trying to ask the appropriate questions to my um, preceptor and it's a blur (laughs) but I remember liking it enough to want to come back the next day so that's that's I think the best takeaway that is a good takeaway yeah (laughs) Uh, just following that train of thought in your early days of working as a surge tech did you have any confirmative moments where you thought like this is exactly where I belong where you were very glad that you're like I chose this path I'm glad I'm here right yeah uh there's been a few uh there's one that sticks out there was one time that I had a uh, 
neurosurgery patient and they had braids. They were African-American and they had braids in their hair. And the neurosurgeon had told me that he was thinking about it the night before, how he wasn't really sure how he was going to manage getting to her scalp with the braids in her hair and how he wasn't even sure how to take them out. And luckily for him and for her, I was available and I'm familiar with black hair because I'm black. And so I was able to educate him and his residents on how to take out um, hair extensions on black hair. And it was great because it actually wasn't just me and the neurosurgery it was also anesthesia helping take out this girl's hair yeah and so we were able to make it an educational moment and for me I understand the personal connection that black people have to their hair it's it's important it's how we present ourselves to the world it's a form of expression for us and I know that it's it's not easy waking up out of surgery, but to wake up out of surgery and to not have your hair how, how you intended it to be, or to have a whole chunk shaved out of it that that's just it's it's harmful to you, your personal confidence. And so I was glad that I was able to help her take out her braids, and I was able to teach the neuro team and the other anesthesiologists that were there how to take out braids. And he was actually able to shave right on, right in between where the braids were. So he, like, we we were able to take them out, but he didn't, he was able to go back on the scar he had already been on. So it was, it was great for, it was great for her. It was great for him. It was like the best, the best possible outcome. And I was glad I was able to make a difference for her. Yeah, that's really cool. And how you have that unique ability in that moment to, make that patient feel comfortable and also to um, offer advice and input to the team and how you you really were needed at that exact moment so it's very confirming it's confirming it it shows how important it is to have diversity of different kinds like diversity of age diversity of nationality of, of origins because that is that collaboration with those perspectives is what really makes a difference in the long run on patient interactions and having the best interaction you can with the team and with the patient. So important. I want to look into your day-to-day a little bit. Could you walk us through a typical day in your life? I know it's always changing, but on average, could you walk us through a day in your life? Sure, yeah. So I hmm, I wake up pretty early. I make sure to get out of the house early, and I'm on the highway. I drive into the city. Uh, a lot of people on the road also driving into the city. <laughs> We're all going the same way. It's like herds of cattle. And once I finally park it where I'm supposed to park for work, I ride a shuttle, and I get to the hospital. I change into scrubs every day and we meet for a huddle in the morning an overall huddle to just talk about um, the workflow of the day and if there are any cancellations of cases or if um, certain cases have to wait and then I look for where I am assigned that day and I'll look at like who my partner is like who's circulating with me and from 
there, I'll figure out what room I'm going to and what type of surgeries I'm doing that day. So dependent on which room I am in or what day of the week it is, that determines what kind of surgery we'll do that day. And the hospital I work at does multiple types of surgeries, so I float within those different services. And yeah, every day is, that's where every day turns into different <laughs> yeah, <laughs> different versions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong, but a surge tech generally has a couple surgeries that they specialize in and they know the sequence of surgery for those specific types of surgery. Was that something that you decided while you were still in your surge tech program or mm-hmm. was that something that you get assigned to when you mm-hmm. step into the hospital mm-hmm. or how does that exactly work? Yes, yeah, so when you're learning, you learn about everything, but as you rotate through clinical, you still rotate through almost every ser- service. So you'll do like general surgery, plastic surgery, uro- urologic surgery, neurosurgery, um, sometimes you'll do dental, sometimes you'll um, also you can well, what I did during clinical I was able to observe cardiac and so dependent on where you feel your skills are best you're able to decide where you want to go and what you may want to do so there are some surgical techniques that only do eyes or only do general or some only do plastics but a good surgical tech is able to float throughout whichever service because overall the principles seem to match up. There are specifics to each surgery but um, in each service also, but it depends on the person and it depends on what their strengths are and what is happening that day also. There are some days we find ourselves doing cases that we're not really comfortable with, to be honest. Yeah. You you get a preference card and you hope that the preference card matches, it's almost like a recipe, to understand what you need within that surgery. So you have to hope that the preference card matches what the doctor needs. So that will guide you a lot throughout the day too. Um, so your question, to answer it, no. Okay. I think yeah. So yeah. no, they they it it depends on the person. Um, me personally, I do multiple services. I don't feel like I do more of one than I do another some days, or some weeks, because every day is really different. Yeah, yeah, and and like you're saying, a good surge tech is able to float between multiple types of surgeries. Yes, and- you take principles of sterility, and you just shift them to match the anatomical position you're operating on okay within daily happenings within the hospital have you faced any ethical dilemmas during your professional work life terms that you might disagree with what the doctor is recommending and you have a different opinion or have you ever had to kind of resolve that in your time as a surge tech yes so there have been times where I I'm not sure how to approach a situation and I'm not sure what the right thing to do is. Um, More times than not, those situations that do involve me, I will be asked, what do you think? Like, they'll ask me what I think, luckily. And so there was one situation where we had a patient that wouldn't talk to us. So 
I believe they were they were the ones they were of age, so they signed the consent. And then when we rolled back, they didn't say anything to us at all. They had something called, and I didn't know this was a thing, it's called um, selective mutism. And so that meant he only spoke to who he wanted to speak to. And so for us, this was an issue because we need him to comply. But if he's not verbalizing that he is willing to move over to the operating bed, then we can't force him to do it. Hmm. And so half of us... We're like, mm, he already came in, he already signed the consent, he rolled back with us, we should just move him over. But then the other half were like, no, because he doesn't want to do it. He's clearly not complying, and we can't force him to do it. So we we had a conversation as a team right there, and we ended up deciding not to do the case because he didn't want to move over and, and do it. He didn't want to put the um, anesthesia mask on him. He didn't, he didn't want anything to do be done to him and so we had to respect that but I never thought I would find myself in in that kind of situation um especially with a patient that signed a consent yeah yeah it can be really challenging too to know the ultimate wish of the patient and you can't violate if they haven't given consent directly but sometimes I cannot it's not a clear exactly it's sometimes yeah. it's just not clear and also we'll like uh we'll run into an issue where if the patient isn't 18 years old, someone else signs the consent. And so like, if it's not their legal guardians or their parents, then we have to question the, the, credit, the, the authenticity of the consent because it has to be those people that sign it. It has to be a guardian or it has to be a parent. So if it's a grandparent and they're not the guardian, and then I have a newer nurse that's like, hmm, should I like, should I ask somebody about this? I'm always like, yeah, ask someone because if you find it alarming for yourself, if you, if something goes off in your head that makes you wonder, is this okay or isn't this okay? If you have to ask yourself that question sometimes, I highly recommend just asking someone because something in our gut asks us or alarms us. Those hormones start alerting us to, to wonder more and more times than not it's with reason so I encouraged her to to ask someone else and they were able to iron it out and she was like hey Angela like I'm so glad you told me to ask someone (laughs) because this would have been an issue later down the line and it's it's just important to kind of trust your instincts Hmm. we've touched on it before with just talking about that ethical decision and that collaboration that's needed with doctors and nurses and You've described the sequence of surgery before as if you're watching a production team. Mm -hmm. Could you pull back the veil a little bit and give us a behind-the-scene view on the collaboration within the OR? Of course. Um, It's one of my favorite parts of surgery. You can't do surgery alone. You can make a podcast by yourself, but you can't do every aspect of the surgery alone you can't bring the patient back you can't check all the consents by yourself you can't intubate them you can't put them to sleep you can't open and close them alone and you you can't roll them off you can't even move them over alone Hmm. you need people to help you do all of these things now the people that help us that actually aren't in the room those are also very vital people to what we do um, all the other types of techs, um, our environmental service workers, those are the people that 
we need just as much as the surgical techs and the nurses. And so I think the collaboration is a really big effort that spreads further than we see or choose to see. So basically what I'm trying to say is I work with everybody in the room. I collaborate with everybody, whether it's helping them find something in the OR, whether it's helping them understand something specific about a doctor's preference, or whether it's, hey, can you help me move this patient over really quick? Or, hey, can you grab me a blanket from the warmer? Or, hey, can you run to the pharmacy and pick something up for me because my patient is trying to hop off the bed? So you you find yourself doing a lot of things, just just aiding people um, when you're when you're in the OR. So my role, what I will help do, I'll help anesthesia uh, find IVs. Like I'll hold the arm if, if the patient's still kind of awake, or I'll I'll talk to the patient as my nurse is trying to put leads on the patient just to kind of calm them down a little. Ask them what kind of dog they have. If they have siblings, um, I'll. Uh, what else will I do? I feel like while it's happening, it's it's like second nature, but when I'm not at work thinking about it, it's almost like watching a show. Um, yeah, I, I find myself just filling in the gaps for the people around me that um, that are preoccupied. Uh, when anesthesia's finding IVs, like I said, I'll help them, I'll pull the sharps off the bed mm-hmm. because they're gonna do that for themselves, but it's one less thing for them to think of when when they're trying to do the rest of their job so I'll, I'll, I'll say hey I took your sharp and I'll take it and I'll put it in the sharps bin and right. little things like that helping out in a small way like that is is seriously something that people will come and be like hey you were so great today I'm so glad you were able to like help me and 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 make me feel supported mm-hmm. um, also at my institution, we teach uh, new nurses to scrub, and so I'll help them scrub in, and I'll help them improve their techniques, or I'll help them answer questions, or learn new services, or even just figure out how to glove themselves, things like that. Like that That's when the lefty thing really comes into play, <laughs> just teaching them lefty skills, that things that I struggled with, I, like, I'm able to help them improve and feel more confident um same thing with the residents if i see them doing something and it's not like something that we do normally or if it's out of if it's not ideal for what we're doing i'll say hey like i'll I'll pull them aside and i'll whisper i'll be like hey like if you're gonna touch my dental setup can you just like put some gloves on and some of them will be offended but some most of them will be like thank you so much if you see me do anything else let me know (laughs) and I'm I'm like I'm more than happy to help you of course Mm. so I find myself like I keep saying just filling in the gaps throughout the room and trying to make sure everyone's safe and just doing what what's best for the patient that's great you've mentioned before in previous conversations that you are your biggest investment Um, could you touch on how you've tried to apply that idea and principle as you've stepped into the workplace. Um, you know, your job can be very demanding as you're dealing with add-ons for the day. Sometimes you're working overnight surgeries. 
sometimes you're paired with a doctor you've never worked with before. Um, so could you just touch on that idea of learning your limits, being honest with yourself, as well as just that importance of wellness, self-care uh, within the medical field? Right. Yeah, I feel so strongly about taking care of not just the outside, but the inside of mm. the person that you're putting out into the world to help people. It's so important that we help ourselves. And I feel like definitely COVID-19 was a turning time for mental health and for really prioritizing mental wellness. It was a lot to handle for people that weren't in healthcare and a lot for the people in healthcare. For me, I was brand new in healthcare. It was a year later that COVID really changed how we did our job and how we looked at healthcare and our trust in the healthcare system. And I don't want to get everyone sick around me. I don't want to bring this home to my family. Or uh, for a lot of people, I want to keep living my regular life and not have to be in a mask all the time. So for me, what I found was tricky was finding that balance between doing or excelling or overextending myself at work and then leaving work and feeling like I'm burnt out, I'm tired, I'm nervous, I'm, I'm on, on edge, um, I don't feel like I have that much experience, I wish I had a vacation. Uh, what else? I I don't know what tomorrow will look like. That was a big question for us because when COVID hit, we we're canceling a lot of surgeries. So it's like, what do you do when there's nothing to do at work? Do they need you there? Am I in the right spot now? Like, did I pick the wrong field? There were so many questions. But what I took away from it two years later was how important it was to really be honest with myself about how I felt and about how much or how how easy I was on myself, how hard I was on myself. I feel like sometimes you can be really hard on yourself and it might feel like the right thing to do then, but you'll look back and wonder why you be why why you were beating yourself up and how how like when you're starting out people will act like sometimes it's really easy what we're doing oh this stuff's cake <laughs> i'm like lady scrubbing neurosurgery isn't cake yeah that takes a lot of <laughs> practice and it takes a lot of like you have to be confident and so like i would i would just wonder like oh is it is it hard because i'm not good or is it hard because i i'm not doing the right i'm i'm not like doing it how i should be you find yourself just questioning what's right for you hmm. and and how you have to take care of your internal self just as much. So that's taking time away, taking a break, taking a mental health day. Like sometimes you do need to call out and sometimes you do need a day off. Sometimes you need someone to talk to, knowing when you need to talk to someone knowing when you need to vent to a coworker, mm. or knowing when you need to talk to a friend who will get your mind all the way off of it, um, 
or like if an issue like comes up at work knowing who to talk to at work to get that issue handled and not waiting until the issue is now inflamed and there's not time to solve it um definitely important it's it's really important to take the time that you need for yourself and to not pour out of an empty cup because we can't help people if we're not even helping ourselves we always need to have our own interests in mind and we were kind of talking about that earlier like when when you go to shadow somebody you have to be like ready to be there meaning Mm -hmm. You have to make sure you're hydrated. You have food in your stomach so that you don't pass out. And it's not that you mean to pass out, but you have to be aware that your nerves will eat will eat up what's going on and you'll just fall like a fly. So you have yeah. to you have to know or you have to know when you're starting to feel really dizzy. That's another thing I didn't realize until it happened to me in clinical. I started to see stars. And for the safety of yourself, because you don't want to fall and hit your head, and for the safety of the patient, you have to know, like, I need to tell someone I feel dizzy and just back away and back up towards the wall. And so that way I can kind of just slide against the wall if I need to go down or or I'm just not near the I'm not near what's going on to affect it negatively. Mm. So, yeah. And it's not just for you personally, but it's for the people that you will end up affecting. And exactly. especially for people within healthcare and you're serving all of these patients and people. Right. And if you're not taking care of yourself, you right. can't effectively help them. Right, I can't so. I can't show up to work sick because I'll get not only the, the patients sick, I'll get the people that are supposed to be taking care of the patients sick too, which isn't any, that's, that's not good either. So you, you really have to be honest with yourself about your limits. Hmm. That's really good. Uh, You have such a powerful perspective as a young black woman in a historically male-dominated field. Could you give us a glimpse into how your unique perspective can foster positive change within healthcare? Absolutely. Uh, I, I feel so strongly about other people of color joining the medical field because it's important to see people that look like you in those environments. It's not often that I hear like people, the patients specifically, like tell me that they feel comfortable, but I know that if I have a black patient and they see me in the room, it it eases some of that anxiety. Um, it, it sometimes you're in scenarios where like as a black person your your pain is downplayed or what you're trying to explain is is undermined or not taken for truth and so even though I'm not a doctor I'm still there to make you feel heard regardless of what your race is so I just find it important for people of color to join the medical field, to be present in the medical field, because we've been through some of those adversities, we understand what it's like to not be taken seriously and to not be seen as as someone coming in for help. Hmm. That's why people, people come to us to be healed, to, to receive help. And being there for everyone it's important because 
lot of people before me didn't have that opportunity. Most of the doctors are white. So when I do see doctors that aren't white, I'm happy. I'm thrilled that those people are changing those types of statistics. It's important, um, especially like living in Massachusetts and in Boston, to acknowledge that there is a, a heavy set of like diverse characters that there's a lot of diversity within the city um there's a there's a lot of different types of people age-wise culture-wise and it's it's inviting to be a part of a newer generation that's interested in those stories that are not just from Massachusetts or not just from the U.S. they're also from different places and different continents that's really valuable. Thank you for sharing that. Um, within the world of surgical technology, how do you stay up to date on the ever-changing medical jargon, sequence of surgery? Um, do you have any techniques to try to stay up to date? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I watch a lot of Grey's. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I love how people think like they'll watch Grey's Anatomy. They're like, I can do this. They're like, no, I know. Triple <laughs> cardiac aortic. I'm like, are you sure? It's not as they make it look really short and sweet on there, and the doctors don't wear eyewear. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think you would really. I don't think you'd do well. But <laughs> um, I I try to. You know what I do actually? I will ask my um, co-workers and other services questions about what they're doing. Um, if I have downtime at work, I'm checking on like the people around me to see if they need something within their case, if they're doing okay. So I'll, I'll just, if they're setting up something, I'll be like, hey, I haven't seen that new instrument. How do I use that? Like, if I needed to use it, what should I know? And so I'll have them like give me a quick in-service on on the best way, like what methods work for them when they're using it or what not to do when they're using a new thing. We do a lot of in-services at work too, so if we get a new piece of equipment, they'll try to instruct us on the best ways to use it. I'm always, always phoning a friend at work, whether it's a coordinator who, who coordinates the service. So like if I have a question on um, piece of equipment somebody has requested like if a doctor asks for something really specific and I can't find it anywhere that's when I'm either asking someone I know in the service or I'm calling the coordinator directly there are surgical technology conferences also where you're able to learn new skills relating to different services and in, in surgery so those are also really helpful mm-hmm. and also just honestly asking questions at work mm-hmm. <laughs> that's one of my pastimes when I'm when I have a second or when it's appropriate I can ask whoever's using it like if I'm seeing something new I'll ask a question mm-hmm. and I, I try to encourage people I'm working with when they're new especially to ask questions because they may feel like a question is dumb or stupid but that question is what bridges the gap between you not knowing and you starting to to try and figure it out. So it's so important to just always ask and not not come into the room feeling like you know everything because I learn something new every single day. 
putting yourself in that lifelong learner position and not being afraid to ask questions and never so never valuable. being afraid. Yeah. I mean, if things are if thing if the feathers are flying and things <laughs> emergently are happening, don't ask the question right yeah, there. But there's a time and place exactly. for it for sure. But yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. What brings you joy outside of the practice of medicine? When you're not in the OR, when you're not in surgery, mm-hmm. what brings you joy outside of the walls of the hospital? That's my favorite question. Because we need sometimes we really need like life outside of sterile fields and scrubs. We do. Yeah. Um I I really like to hang out with my friends. They're they're my favorite peeps. Um we like to go out to eat. Uh I like to listen to music. I like to go to concerts when I can or to travel when I have days off. Uh, I like to watch documentaries. I like to take pictures and do photography. I like to cook when I have the ambition, usually on the weekends. Uh, what else? I like to go outside. I like summertime the most because I feel like you just get the best weather around here in the summer. I mean, I guess I'm biased. <laughs> I'm looking at the leaves. <laughs> like, fall is cool. Fall is nice when we have weather like this, because today wasn't bad. No, no. In the 60s. Um, but yeah, I think those are, that's my list. It's important to, like you're saying, it can't all be scrubs. Like, you have to have other areas of your life that are not involved with your job, and right. to separate that is really important. Yeah, I really like learning more about the people that I work closely with, even the doctors. Like, mm-hmm. it's so interesting to hear, like, they have hobbies outside of work, and they have lives and families and things that they like to do and places they like to visit over and over again, because then I'm realizing, okay, I'm not just working with a doctor, I'm working with a regular person who outside of here is just a regular person with regular feelings and a life. What about non-negotiables? Do you have any non-negotiables in life? Things that you need to be consistent with in your life and things that form a structure or that are very beneficial just for who you are. We've talked about it a little bit with like the wellness aspect of it, but are there any other aspects of that? It's like so important to have people around you that are on your side people that support what you're doing and keep you close to the ground because regardless of what we're trying to pursue we may get wrapped up in the details of our goals and put things like our friends and our families and our hobbies on the back burner so I feel like it's important to to make time for things that you like to do, to make time for places that you want to go, not to limit your goals towards what you're doing right then and there. For me, like my goals would be to finish school, but every weekend I can't just be in the book. <laughs> I can't just be in the library because I know I'll lose my nachos. I'll need, I'll need to leave or I'll feel like I'm not doing what I should be doing so I try to keep my life semi-interesting by going out to eat once a month or by going to like a concert or by visiting a friend in a different city every few weeks because those are the things that keep us human and also 
we don't realize sometimes how capable and how lucky we are. I feel like I work with a lot of really sick patients and I can bring home some of that like heavy feeling from, I can bring it home from work, but it's important for me to also live my life outside of helping these people because that's that's why I'm here. I'm here to help people, but I'm also here to live the, the life that I was supposed to live and enjoy the beauties of of traveling and eating good food and of of reaching personal goals and mm-hmm. and and seeing my friends and my family do great things and and cheering them on and and meeting new people and making those connections like this it's something that is constantly changing mm-hmm. i'd say and you're you're not losing the human side to who you are too and you have to keep yourself human and at the end of the day we are human and we need our breaks and we need our rest and we need our creative passions and loves and part of who we are as people and we can't just study all the time or we can't just be focused on our career all the time but we do need that balance we need that balance yeah we really do yeah I want to look briefly at the idea of the younger generation as a culture of change You've talked about it a little bit in previous conversations, um, but could you just describe that idea of just being um, within the younger generation and for you personally entering into the field of medicine um, as a younger adult, could you just describe how you have the potential to kind of to change the culture within medicine or certain like age-old practices or things that have been around for a while that you can bring a fresh perspective or a new new eyes to that yeah sure so when I first started in the OR I remember my instructor letting us know very gently the people that you'll encounter are not always gonna be nice when you meet nurses that have been in the game for a while they'll let you know they've been in the game for a while and not to mess with them they won't say it like that, but they'll let you know that you're in their territory and that you need to do things the way that they're telling you to do them because that's how they've done them since the 80s. Now, it's not always a bad thing mm-hmm. to do things the way they've always been done. However, I've learned that it's not the only way to do things. There are some practices that go down to just how people like to set up their back tables if people like to cover it with an extra sheet if they like to put a towel where everyone puts a towel if they don't where they don't so there's what I learned is that there's a lot of different formulas that can equate to the same end result Mm -hmm. so we don't have to really fight about how we do the little pieces of these things meaning we don't have to disagree on things that are not really worth focusing on. So I feel like instead of some of the nurses that would nitpick on my technique and not try to teach me their technique in a way that made sense to me, or they would just be really keen on not letting me do or letting me try it, those are the people that I just would have to deal with. Like, I would have to be
be comfortable in just doing exactly what they wanted, yesing them until I went home, and <laughs> and just not really being like authentic and being like, hey, I, I, I know what I'm doing. I kind of know what I'm doing, and I'm here to take your criticism, but you know, the criticism doesn't have to be like personal jab where you feel like where you feel like you're ready to cry like you just failed the American Idol audition and you're holding back tears it didn't have to like be that serious and I feel like sometimes that culture of the the nurses that you meet that are like old school nurses that you meet can be vicious Mm. and like their approach is to eat their young a little bit and or also to just throw you in the deep end and then you're doggy paddling trying to get to the shore and you just feel like you're floundering. And, and I feel like where I come into that is I don't like that approach. I don't like people coming into the OR feeling nervous to ask a question, feeling nervous just being there because that energy I can feel when you're nervous it doesn't make me feel any more comfortable and I have a lot to think about right now so I feel like it's so important to embrace the new people that want to learn more about the OR to give them the opportunity to ask questions to be hands-on to to be there and to have um, a, a view in in what's going on and to just really uplift them as they're learning because people did that for me and my lefty self was able to make it happen because there were other lefties helping me and there were other people that were able to give me that opportunity and, and be gentle, hmm. I, like a little gentle. I like to tell the people I'm teaching, we weren't born knowing how to scrub. <laughs> No one was born knowing how to do a lap appy. We don't know how to just scrub these things from nowhere. We all started out being completely clueless. Whether you were clueless as a medical student, whether you were clueless as a scrub tech student, whether you were a clueless re- resident, like you, you learn, but you start off really confused. And you have to give those people that are confused an opportunity to, to gain the knowledge. You do have to give them that opportunity, and instead of there being that critical look as an older person looking at the younger of saying, you're coming into my space, there needs to be more of that mentorship and that training and realizing that although you're young now, you eventually will take their position and their role, and yeah, you need and you need that constant communication too between the older generation and the younger generation. No, because they both share so many important outlooks that come from experience in different places. Um, I really do feel that your age doesn't always equate to your amount of wisdom because there are people who are really young who have been through extreme times and, and have gained all types of experience just from their life. Whether you see it as long or short, it still counts for something. Mm. Yeah. And just in closing, is there any encouragement that you would give to an aspiring healthcare professional? Oh, yes. (laughs) My biggest piece of advice would always be to ask questions, um, to always try and and show up and, and be ready to learn. It's not always easy taking criticism, but 
just come ready to see things you've never seen and to be teachable. It's really important to have an open mind on learning how to do something you've never done before and to not be extremely fearful of the unknown. You go based off what you know and then you're able to translate it into what you don't know and then bring it back into what you do know. So always asking questions, always being friendly. Oh my goodness, like you're super friendly and that's <laughs> something I really like about you. You're able to make connections with people just from talking to them. And I feel like it's so vital to make friends, at least to be friendly with your team because you're able to communicate better if you're comfortable. If you come into the room and no one knows who you are and you just stand there like a statue and we all just have to like work around you, it's harder for us to to do our job, but it's also harder for you to get what you're supposed to get out of the whole experience if you're not trying to make an effort to be friendly, to be helpful, to to be nice to your, your nurse, to be nice to your surgical tech, because those are the people that when you're learning will change how you see things and will help you throughout the way. If we know you're willing to take the advice, we're happy to help you. I like to tell the residents, I like to joke with them, I'll always give you what you need, I'll always help you, but I might give you a hard time about it <laughs> if you give me a hard time. So we're able to, to understand each other that way. The other thing too is to just be real with yourself and to be honest with where you are. I would be really hard on myself when I was learning, when I couldn't figure out a skill, when I didn't pass my, my first practical. I was so hard on myself. Um, but I didn't let it keep me down. I didn't let it really eat me all the way up because I saw it as just where I could improve. And okay, I gotta work a little faster. Okay, I gotta be a little more a, a, like detail oriented when it comes to certain things because that's that's what makes a world of a difference just paying more attention and being more honest with myself and being friendly to everybody those are great pieces of advice well thank you so much for just sitting down with me for taking a look into the the surge tech world gaining insight into wellness within healthcare collaboration how you're facing burnout. Um, we touched on a lot of good things. So thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. And I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I hope we can do this again. Of course, we'll have to do a part two. We will have to do a part two. <laughs> thank you for tuning into this episode of Voices from Healthcare. This podcast seeks to give practical advice to aspiring healthcare professionals and encourage those within the healthcare field. If you appreciate the message and mission of this podcast, leave a rating and review on the platform you are listening to, and make sure to follow the podcast so that you do not miss out on future episodes. It really does help spread the word within the podcasting world. Tune in on December 6th as I connect with a friend and fellow undergraduate pre-med student we will gain a young, innovative, and international voice on the world of healthcare. She is an Austrian-Ethiopian-American 
who was educated in the French and Austrian schooling systems. We will explore her cultural world in which she grew up, how her love for medicine grew over time, and her journey to America. We will touch on the value of internships and how students might have a sustainable and healthier approach to academics. She will touch on the power of being a woman of color in healthcare and the importance of stimulating the creative loves. Feel free to send me professions you want me to interview, questions you have, or neat stories you want to share with me. You can email me at voicesfromhealthcare at gmail.com. You can also check out the podcast Instagram page at voicesfromhc. Here I'll post important updates about season launches, episode information, and more. Although this podcast seeks to be informative, information discussed cannot be taken in place of medical advice.